0: And so I've called it uh, the summer of ministry. And so this morning I want to start with a ministry that we began uh, this winter, I believe in January, uh, and it's a kind of a men's ministry called Men's Fraternity. And so I've asked a couple of our guys uh, just to come up and share briefly about how that went, uh, what they experienced, how maybe God used in that, uh, used uh, that experience in their life, and also to encourage you guys who are not a part of it to consider. And so guys, come on up, you know who you are, and uh, have a seat, and then I'll quiz you grill ya. No, it won't be too hard, I promise. (laughs) Here you go. Uh, So I've asked Nick and Patrick to come and uh, just share briefly with us. (laughs) Welcome, guys. Thanks for doing this. Uh, So first question, if you could just give everyone uh, just a little kind of a short summary synopsis of uh, our men's ministry experience. What do we do on a functional kind of level?
1: get up real early and eat,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that is true. We do get up really early and we do eat.
1: Uh, well, functionally, we come in and we we, we we do sit down and we 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 have a little breakfast and then Trey turns on the uh, the video. I can't remember what the gentleman's name is. Uh, uh, Robert Lewis. Robert Lewis. Yep. Okay. And uh, it was a uh, it was a seminar. Put on through his church, and, and so we're. I mean, it's not interactive. We are sitting there watching it, but, but there's a uh, uh, the booklet Trey's got it that uh, uh, we go through, and uh, uh, we kind of fill in the questions, fill in the blanks, and uh, we cheat off each other quite a bit <laughs> because well, I'm just barely awake, so I mean, to catch everything is near impossible, even when I'm completely and totally awake. Um, then, and and that's beneficial. Really, though, I think the meat of the matter comes at the end uh, when we take about 15 minutes and, and we sit down and we we digest the questions together and uh, uh, talk it over amongst each other.
0: So Patrick, I'll ask you a separate question because Nick pretty well okay. you know, hit a home run on that one. Uh, can you kind of tell us what maybe was the thrust of the content of the material for, for this past semester, we'll call it? He say, there it is. Got you cheat sheet. Yeah. <laughs> the biblical definition of being a man. And some of the things that we went over I knew, and some of them I definitely didn't know. Not growing up with a father, a lot of them I didn't know that I had to relearn. So. Yeah, absolutely. And basically what we talked about is, is the whole first semester was kind of looking back into our past and our lives as men, after some preliminary stuff, what is biblical manhood, and we kind of took a journey back. And I think for most guys, including myself, that's kind of uncomfortable, and we kind of think, oh, do I really want to do that? I think it, it was extremely helpful, regardless of what kind of background you did, because who we have been uh, oftentimes shapes who we are and who we're becoming. Uh, so just as a bit of a preview of where we're going next semester, I'm going to take this back from you guys, uh, topics include uh, Genesis and Manhood, a, a biblical definition of manhood, a man and his wife, 25 ways to be a servant leader, father and sons, father and daughters, and a man and his life journey. So we're kind of taking uh, the the journey next semester from the past to the present and to the future. And uh, so I really encourage you guys to do that. Um, So I guess my next question for either of you or both of you is uh, how did you find it beneficial? Is there something that kind of stood out from your first semester experience? Um, the questions at the end were tough for me. I remember going home and talking to my wife, Heather, about it, and some of them I didn't have answers, and I found myself watching more men interact and how they did it. And... Thanks.
1: I think the, the, the part that probably struck me the most was that we all have a wound uh, uh, or wounds of some sort that we bring into our experience as men. Um, and, and, and some are more significant than others, but it, it's, it's – uh, as, as men, we kind of tend to tuck it away and sweep it under the rug and ignore it. And uh, um, and what that ends up doing is kind of rearing its ugly head within our relationships with our wives and other people and uh, this environment that we had. And, and, and it was tough uh, to sit around with a bunch of other guys, especially right at the beginning, uh, and and to look and talk about <laughs> feelings. Right, right, talk about feelings. <laughs> that ain't easy. And... Uh, uh, to, and and a lot of it was was pretty personal. Uh, I mean, it was not just pretty; it was completely personal. And and uh, I, I know there was a, a couple times where there was a lot of wet wet eyes, and uh, you know, I would come home and Jen would go, "So, how'd it go?" And I'd go, "Wow." And and uh, yeah, I think we're kind of painting it out as being a pretty. Tough situation. This is but. supposed to be a promo, guys. Yeah, here we go. I, don't, I, don't, <laughs> I want to make people but, but I, go. <laughs> I, I think, and Patrick and I have, have talked about this as well, and it, it's if you allow it to be, it's very life-changing. And it, it's, it's very powerful stuff. And the... the, the uh, I'll quit blabbing here in just a second. Society's definition of a man, which you see on TV, the bubbling idiot who doesn't know anything and is a, a, a fool, is completely out the door, and, and, and this addresses that. And, and I really, really sincerely think that that uh, 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 you know, bonding with, with guys like Patrick, uh, you know, being able to have those relationships, helps us become better Christian men.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So one wrap-up question for you guys. What would you say for a guy out there who is thinking in his head, 5.30 is really early, and I think that as well. It um, is. <laughs> uh, but they're thinking, but breakfast sounds good. And it, it is. is. Uh, and, and who's considering maybe jumping in? Uh, first of all, it's not too late. Um, and second of all, what would you say?
1: I, you know, I, I'll I'll just reiterate that that um, it, it is a moving experience. And if you if you if you want to get closer to God and you want to get closer to family and and dads, you want to be better fathers of your kids. Uh, uh, period. And and not have those regrets. Uh, uh, you know the the cats in the cradle kept coming through my mind this whole time we were there, and, and I'd come home and I'd see Max and uh, and Gwen and Sarah and I'd think, oh man, I'm really flunking out here. Um, this is great great teaching.
0: I pretty much say the same thing Nick did. Um, <clears throat> I found myself all the flaws I had, and <laughs> so. <laughs> but it's 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 good. It. A lot of questions a lot of men have. They actually discuss it, and you need to discuss that with men. Mm-hmm. Men are the ones that'll help you get through those things. Yeah, absolutely. All yeah. right. Well, I'm going to let you off the off the hook, and uh, guys, let's give them a round of applause for being willing to come <laughs> talk with us. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thanks, brother. Yep. All right. So uh, this point, at this point, I'm going to ask uh, impromptu, uh, Stan. You pray for us, buddy. Can you pray for us? Sure. Okay, come on up. Stan's gonna pray for us, and uh, we're gonna prepare our hearts for worship and prayer. So, worship team, come on up, and uh, let's pray. Here you go, Stan. I'll give you this. Sorry, impromptu. <laughs> let's pray. Uh, Father, it is good. It's good that we can gather here um, at your church. Um, that our desires are to know you better and to lift our worship to you. Um, just pray for the, uh, that men's fraternity. Pray for the men here that are um, playing around with the idea of going. Just pray that you would move in them and uh, that your spirit would work in them. Just once again, um, just want to pray for this time. And I pray uh, that you would be honored through it. In Christ's name, amen. Good morning. Do better than that. Good morning. Morning. All right, good to see uh, you've had your coffee or cappuccinos or whatever variety of caffeine you need this morning. Hope you're awake and uh, alert this morning. Uh, We're going to continue in our summer series called The Idol Factory, and uh, we are in the Idol Factory Part 4. And uh, as you can see, or maybe you've noticed or haven't noticed, uh, the Idol Factory, uh, the Idol Factory of our heart, has begun to produce. Boxes and uh, if you can see it or not, but it says children, fragile, handle with care. And so this morning in the Idol Factory, uh, Factory Part Four, we are going to begin to talk about specific idols, potential specific idols in our hearts, uh, by way of really brief review. Uh, Thus far, we've seen in the Idol Factory uh, that we were made to worship God, uh, made in the image of God, made to be in relationship with God, to serve Him, to sacrifice to Him, to know Him, and to delight in Him. We have, as humanity, and from that, and our hardened heart then uh, moves away from worship of God and towards worship of anything or anyone else. We've seen, uh, in addition to that, uh, that idols, although oftentimes in the Bible referring to physical, tangible, totem pole kind of a thing, that oftentimes, both in the Old and New Testament, that idols are uh, non-tangible things, things like uh, greed and things like power and things like control. And so we have learned that anything and everything can be an idol and that we uh, tend to worship and bow down uh, to those idols. We've seen three primary categories of relating to idols. We've seen that, number one, we love our idols. It's a relational image. Uh, God says that he, in the Old Testament, is Israel's spouse and that they are unfaithful to him and they commit spiritual adultery with him. They love other things more than him. Also, we trust in idols. That is, uh, God is our savior. He is to deliver us from uh, affliction, uh, deliver us from our sin, and yet when we pursue idols, we trust in them as our functional savior. We, in addition to that, have seen uh, that we sacrifice to idols. As we are called to call, call the sacrifice to God, we in turn uh, sacrifice to idols. Uh, and then last week we saw that our heart is indeed an idol factory. We've seen that we get caught up or captured by idolatry. It, it dangles out a bait, something that looks very satisfying, but under the bait there is the hook. If you recall, it's like chocolate-covered alpo on the outside. It looks very good, as chocolate is, but once you get and to the core of it, it tastes very, very bad and is not satisfying. And so that's where we've been. And this morning in the Idol Factory Part 4, we're going to talk about the potential idol of children. And so let's do this. Let's pray one more time and ask God's blessing and God's Spirit to come and teach us, and then we'll get started. Father, we do ask that you would send your Spirit. Spirit, would you come and speak through your Word in a clear way, in a meaningful way, in a way that's impactful uh, to our hearts and lives. Father, may you find, as you send your spirit, open hearts, open minds, moldable lives. May we have eyes to see uh, the idols that are all around us in our community, and especially, Father, would you give us eyes to see uh, the idols that are dwelling and in our hearts. Uh, We need your help to see them. We want to worship you alone. We want to worship your son alone. We want to find great satisfaction and delight and meaning in life in him alone, and so spirit come, do this work, and we ask it in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, This past weekend, uh, thanks to some very generous... Uh, neighbors of ours, we have borrowed a steam vac, kind of a water vacuum, and uh, I think, although I don't know if this is true or not, or, sh- or Shelly, but I'll, I'll presume that part of the nesting process for my wife, as we anticipate the birth of our son, is everything clean, everything in order, and praise God for that, because I am nothing clean and nothing in order, <laughs> and so we, you know, she said, let's let's do our rugs, and I said, yeah, let's do it, and so we borrowed this, uh, this steam vacuum, and it's, it's a wonderful thing, uh, and it, the amazing thing about it is you start to, you know, you crank the thing up and you start to go and you do it slow and you do it steady and you let the water you know, flow and mix with it and you suck it back up and periodically, probably as you as you're doing it every ten minutes or so, um it, it quits, it makes this loud noise, and you're like, okay, it's full. And so then you go and you dump out, if you've ever done this, you know what I'm talking about. You dump out this little water thing and it's all of the dirty water. You know, it's all of the dirt that has been sucked up through your vacuum. And if you're nodding, you know what I'm talking about. And you and you, you take that thing and you begin to dump into your sink what has been in your rugs and you're like, oh my goodness, it's black, you know? I mean, it's not like just mildly dirty. It's like this was in my rug, and then you keep doing it, and you keep discovering that all of your rug is like that, and you keep producing this black filth of muck. And the thing that I was reminded of, and we've done this before, so it's not a shock. Um, the first time it was, it was a shock. But it still reminds me of a simple uh, analogy, and as, when, you're, when you're a preacher, Everything relates to your sermon. <laughs> Everything. And so I, I began to think, I was like, you know what? This is very much like how I want our series on idolatry to be. And so I want to challenge you in that sense. Because when you look at, when you look at the carpet, at least when I look at my carpet, it doesn't look that bad. I mean, it's relatively clean. You don't, you know, it's, it's mildly clean. It's fairly new. It's like four years old, you know? And I'm, and I'm, I look at it and I'm like, This doesn't need cleaning. There's nothing really under there. But when you do it, when you're exposed uh, to what is in your carpet, you're like, wow, there's a lot of junk in my carpet. And I don't know if it's been this way for you, but as Shelley and I have conversed about uh, the idol factory and as we've talked with several of you, what has been coming to the surface from underneath the rug, praise be to God, is potential idols in our life. In the, in the, in the, in the last two weeks, I mean, Shelly and I have both had experiences, and I shared last week, one of mine, of, man, God, I, I've been praying that you would reveal idols in my life, but I didn't want you to do it that way, you know? Um, and, and maybe you've been having that kind of experience. Maybe God is working in you through this sermon series to... To reveal potential idols in your life, and so if so, this is what I, I want to do. I want to challenge you to do by way of preface to our sermon. Um, I would love for you to get in touch with me and to say, "This is what's been happening in my life. Here's some of the dirt that God's been digging up." I want to share that with people. Now that can be scary to share p- with people. Here are some of the idols that I struggle with. But I tell you what, the conversations that I've had with Shelley and with uh, other people in our church when we're we're saying, "Man, this is what God doing. God's doing, and He's revealing this." It's so encouraging. Because you're like, oh, I'm not the only one. And God is moving. And so I want to challenge you to do that. You don't have to come up front and do that. If you want to send me a Facebook or send me an email, I would love to hear that. And we can share as a people of God what God is doing through this sermon series. So the Idol Factory Part 4. The Idol of Children. Turn in your Bibles with me to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Uh, that's where we are going to be camping out, and uh, chapter 2 is where we are going to spend most, if not all, of our time, uh, and we will be reading the story of Abraham uh, and Isaac and God testing Abraham uh, through his one and only son. And so Genesis chapter 22 is where uh, we're going to be. Um, there are pew few Bibles uh, in front of some of you, and so if you want to turn to page 16, you can do that. Uh, The text should be on the screen as well. So uh, by way of introduction, by way of introduction, I want to do this. Uh, I want to share with you a quick story. There was a story that I read, uh, and and there was a a hiker, and he was a fairly experienced hiker, uh, confident in his ability to hike, and so he was hiking up a fairly steep mountain, and he was doing so by himself, uh, which apparently is unwise. And he was walking, and full of self-confidence, full of thinking about what would be ahead of him. As the story goes, he didn't notice that there was uh, a a drop-off that was just to his left, and he slipped. He was clumsy, and he fell off the ledge. Of course, as the story goes, he grabs on uh, to uh, a branch that is overhanging the cliff. And so there the man, st- uh, I, I want to say stands, but that's not right. There the man uh, dangles uh, from this cliff, grasping on to dear life. And the story goes something like this. He realized that he could not pull himself up. And so he yells out, uh, terrified, is anybody up there? And a voice says, yes, I'm here. The man, well, who is it? The voice God, man, God, please help me. The voice, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Man, I, tr- I completely trust you. I completely trust you. Please save me. Voice, good. Let go of your branch. Let go of your branch. The man, what? <laughs> or something like that. Voice, I said, let go of the branch. Man, After a long pause, is there anyone else up there? Of course, uh, I think a fictional story. Um, so this morning, we're going to be uh, in Genesis chapter 22, and we're going to hear a story of a man by the name of Abraham. Maybe you're familiar with this story at the beginning of the Bible, maybe you're not. Uh, but we are going to hear just a small tidbit, kind of a snapshot, of what was one of the most significant events in all of his life. And it's found in Genes- Genesis chapter 22, and it's the events where God essentially tells him to let go. To let go not of his own life, uh, but to let go of the life of his dearly only promised son." And so this morning, what I hope we're going to see is a positive example. As we go throughout the weeks, we're going to see both positive and negative examples. That is, we will see examples of men and women in the Bible who fail in the realm of idolatry, who worship idols, and then we're also going to see examples of men and women who didn't. Positive examples of people who overcame potential idols, and I would suggest to you that Abraham is one of those men who overcame a potential idol in his life, that being his first born son. Uh, I, as I thought about it, and as you read through, uh, and this is my summary of Genesis 12 uh, through 21, as you read through these chapters, you come to realize that, in my opinion, if anything could have been an idol for Abraham, it would have been his son. Uh, briefly, really briefly, Genesis 12 through 21, this is what happens leading up to our story. Basically, the story of Abraham starts in Genesis 12. And Abraham is called by God, and God says, leave your family, leave your extended family, leave your homeland uh, where you're from, and go to a place. And by the way, I'm not going to tell you where. Just go. (laughs) I'm going to show you. And from your descendants, Abraham, from the fruit of your loins, if you will, I'm going to produce a great nation. There will be people as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands, on the seashore, I will make of you a great nation, and, and there 's more involved in that but that 's basically uh, that 's basically the call and This is a wonderful promise uh, because Abraham was childless at that point. Um, if you have ever struggled with infertility, as I think Abraham and his wife did, then you can begin to grasp and understand how significant of a promise this was to a man who in that culture, the firstborn son carried on the family name, carried on the family wealth, carried on the family, not just tradition, but uh, standing, if you will. Such a huge thing. And he and his wife were childless. And here God gives him a hope. Now, when he called Abraham to go, uh, surely he left behind many other hopes, many other comforts, but he gained a new one, and that is a promise of a child. So we skip ahead a few chapters, and finally, in chapter 21, after several interesting turns of events in the life of Abraham, in chapter 21, the day finally comes. In chapter 21, we find out that the miracle child born to both Abraham and Sarah in old age is brought to fruition and there is much joy and much rejoicing. And I would suggest to you not only is there joy and rejoicing in the fact that God fulfilled his promise and did a miraculous birth, but I would suggest that there's also the possibility for idolatry now has entered in maybe a significant way, into Abraham's life. And the question that I think we're left with after the birth of Isaac in chapter 21, leading into the story in chapter 22, is this. To whom will Abraham ultimately love? To whom will Abraham ultimately give his heart? Whose obedience will Abraham ultimately give? Will it be to God, or will it be to a new potential child who he loves so dearly? And his son Isaac. So let's find out. Let's read together uh, the account in Genesis chapter 22. And uh, we will read verses 1 through 19 together. Starting in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, take your son, your only son whom you love Isaac and go to the regions of Moriah describe him uh, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show to you verse 3 early the next morning Abraham got up and loaded his donkey he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering he set out for the place God had told him about on the third day Abraham looked up Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they had reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, "Abraham, Abraham, here I am." He replied, "Do not lay a hand on the boy." He said, "Do not, uh, do not do anything to him. Now I know. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son." your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket was a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Kind of as a summary now. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sands on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba, and Abraham stayed in Beersheba. A reading of God's holy word. And so, um, boy, if I had about an hour more, there's so much that I would like to say about this story. Uh, but... I am going to limit myself uh, to three lessons, to three points. And so what I'd like to do is for us to see three lessons from the life of Abraham and Isaac from this story in Genesis 22. Three lessons, I think, of what we can learn about the potential idol of our children as parents. And so lesson number one, if you're taking notes, jot this down. Lesson number one is found in verse one, uh, and that is this. God may test us. God may test us to see if our children are our idols. God may test us to see if our kids are our idols. Now, in this story, he did so in a rather dramatic way, an extremely dramatic way. But notice the emphasis. It's found at the very first verse of the text, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested. God tested him. And so from the very get-go, we see that God is testing Abraham. He's testing his faith, he's testing his obedience, and I think he's testing his ultimate love. He's testing his ultimate obedience. He's testing his ultimate allegiance, if you will. Dr. Constable says this about this word, this idea of a biblical test. He says this, Such a testing, such a a testing shows what someone is really like. That is, it reveals what's in their heart. Such a testing shows what someone is really like, and it usually involves difficulty or hardship. It involves difficulty or hardship. That's an understatement, to say the least, as applied to its use here. God was testing Abraham through extreme difficulty and extreme hardship, And that's how testings usually come. And so another way maybe to illustrate it is that a good test, say for my two-and-a-half-year-old son, uh, poor guy, he's always sermon fodder here, (laughs) uh, a, a good test is this, is when I say, is not when I tell Asher, Asher, go get a popsicle right now. That's not a real good test if I say, go get a popsicle because he's inclined towards that. There's no difficulty involved. But a better test is when I say, you have to eat your broccoli first then you can have a popsicle. That's a better test for him. It involves difficulty or hardship. And what becomes of that is his ultimate love, his ultimate allegiance, his ultimate obedience. Is it to me or himself? And what I would suggest to you in our first lesson is that God might, as he did with Abraham, although... Probably not in as extreme of a way. God may bring broccoli-first tests into our life as parents to see if our children are our idols. That is, tests that may be hard, they may be difficult, they may be challenging. Uh, we may not like them, but they may be good for us. And so, speaking applicationally, how might God do this? How might God test us, as he did Abraham, to see if our kids are our idols, um, numerous ways, but I'll suggest one. One way is through the hardships and the difficulties that our children face. As a very young parent, uh, I'm coming to realize that uh, when my son falls and scrapes himself or when he hurts himself um, the, the, sometimes it's more traumatic for me as a parent than it is for him. He gets over it, in, you know, quickly, but we are, can be more concerned than he does. And so how do we respond when our kids face trials, when they face adversity? How do we respond when our kids are picked on at school? How do we respond when they may have a learning disability? How do we respond when they have a group of friends and they are rejected? Uh, There's someone in the group that picks on them. There's someone in the group that kicks them out of their social network. How do we respond to that? How do we respond when maybe they are not keeping up academically as we would like or when they don't get the playing time that we think they should or as they get older, there's a boyfriend or there's a girlfriend and their heart gets broken? How do we respond when there's a parent who's speaking wrongly, gossip, insults, lies about our kids? How do we respond to that? I I would suggest to you that how we respond might indicate whether our children are idols or not and whether God may be testing us through these events. Um, I want to share a quick story with you. Uh, Tim Keller has written um, quite a bit on idolatry, and he shares a story in one of his books, and uh, it's from his pastoral experience as a young minister, and I'll summarize it for you. But he basically says that uh, as a pastor in New York, um, there were two ladies at one time that he was doing counseling with, separate, of course, and they were both having very similar issues. They, had, they both had husbands who uh, were... Um, Just not very good fathers. The husbands would stay home uh, stay away from the home, they would stay at work late, they would mistreat their sons, they wouldn't give them the respect, they wouldn't give them him the love. They were just not very good fathers, is the portrait that he painted. And so he was dealing with these two ladies, and early on he said, well, I, I, I think what I really need to do is instruct these ladies to say, listen, this is not only hurting your, your, your children, but it's causing friction between you and your husband, and so you need, you, have all, you collectively too, have all this anger and bitterness towards your husband because of what is happening and how he's treating or mistreating your kids. And so he said, early on as a pastor, I thought, well, what I need to do is is, is just help them realize that they need to forgive their husband. That they need to forgive their husbands. And so he went on and he worked with both of them, giving, uh, giving them instruction about how to forgive their husbands. There was one lady who was the more mature Christian. She had been a Christian a long time, grown up in church, knew scripture. There was another of the moms who was a younger believer, uh, kind of a recent convert, didn't have all the knowledge. And he said, in retrospect, I realized that one of the mothers was able to forgive the husband and deal with what he had been doing or not doing with the child and move on in a healthy way. But the other, he said, the other did not. And guess which one was the one who forgave? The older, more mature, or the younger, novice Christian? It was the younger, novice Christian. And he said, this baffled my mind for so long because it should have been the other one who was able to forgive. And then he said, after years of kind of chewing on it, he said, basically, I've come to the realization that, in my humble opinion, the reason why the older, mother the older lady could not forgive her husband and the newer christian could was because for the older lady their children were her idols she idolized the kids and what he was doing to the kids she could not forgive she could not forgive because the kids were what were ultimate in their life but the other could and i thought I think that's very true. What happens when hardships face our children? That may be one of many ways that God might test us to see if our kids are our idols. Uh, Number two, second lesson that I think we can learn from this story, and there are many. I have a two-page document here, and uh, I had about ten pages worth, so you're getting the short version, (laughs) so don't complain. (laughs) Uh, Number two, lesson number two, it's right to love your kids. It's right to love your kids, but not more than God but not more than God. And I I think this is inferred in verse two. In verse two, we see, uh, it says this, then God said, take your son, and notice how he describes Isaac. He doesn't say, take Isaac. Notice the words that he intentionally uses to describe to Abraham his son. Take your son, your only son, your only son whom you love. And that's right. I don't think this is an indictment. I don't think God is saying, You love Isaac more than me, but he may be saying, Be careful. It's good for you to love your son. We should love our children. That's biblical and scriptural. We absolutely should. But we should not love them more than we love God. In fact, when you read through the account, I don't know if you noticed, there's a repetition of this phrase Your only son. Your only son your only son. Why is that? It's because he was Abraham's only son, but not just his only son. He was the heir. He was the one whom God's promise of a nation that would bless all of the world would come. He's not just any firstborn son. He's not just any only son. He is the son. And there's a repetition there. Tim Keller says on Uh, verse 2, he says, God God was not saying that you cannot love your son, that is to Abraham, but that you must not turn a loved one into a counterfeit God. And so I want us to chew just briefly on the question, how can we tell if we love our kids more than God? How can we tell if we've elevated our children to the place of idols in our lives? Um, I will suggest to you, Man, there are numerous ways, but I will suggest just a couple things. And I want to use the image that's throughout the Old Testament of how we relate to idols. We trust our idols, we love our idols, we obey our idols. And so let me use these categories. Uh, to help us flesh this out. Number one, we trust our idols. We trust our idols. And so what does it look like for our kids to be trusted in? Another way to ask the question is, what does it look like for us to allow our kids to become our functional savior, a term uh, that is uh, brought about, invented, for lack of a better word, by Mark Driscoll. What does it look like for us to allow our kids to be functional saviors, for us to turn to them to deliver us from our plight? Uh, So moms, we'll start with you, and then we'll get to the the dads. Moms, uh, it might look like this. You are in a a lack of affection relationship. Your husband does not love you the way he should. He's unaffectionate. He's unkind. He's not tender. And you are desperately longing for that, as you should be, from your husband. But instead, you think, and I've I've heard of this happening, instead you think, well, we're going to have kids, and that's going to make it better. We're going to have kids. And then when the kid comes in, then that's going to make our relationship better. I'll, I'll receive the affection. Maybe he then will turn and, and love me. And so we have this uh, child that becomes essentially a functional savior. We think this kid will maybe make the husband be affectionate towards me or forget the husband. I'm just going to receive my affection from this child that I'm going to bring into the world. Uh, Similarly, maybe uh, a desire or a lack of unconditional love. You don't experientially, as a Christian, receive and experience in a tangible way that God has unconditional love for his beloved children. And you are not receiving that from other places. You want someone to love you unconditionally. And any parent, I think, would attest to the fact that at least initially, Boy, you receive that from your kids, don't you? I mean, they love you. They think you're the greatest. When Daddy's doing something, he's trying to fix something, and, and I'm horrible at fixing things. I'm like, screwdriver, what bit do I use? And I'm just a mess. And Daddy, and my son comes up and he says, "Can I, can I screwdriver? Can I screwdriver?" And he gets a screwdriver and he and he begins. And he just he wants to be like me. He loves unconditionally, and that can become an idol. Maybe particularly for moms. Uh, Maybe a lack of purpose. Moms, you feel like uh, you may not have a purpose in life. You are searching for something to give yourself to that is greater than yourself. And instead of doing that in God and through Christ and giving yourself to the mission of the church, you say, I'm going to give myself and my life to my kid. These are just a few. Fathers, what about you? One way that I would suggest that you can make your Children, But maybe your sons in particular into functional saviors is that you seek for them to do what you did not do You essentially pursue your unmet dreams in them Whether it be the classroom the boardroom or the ball field and you seek to live your unmet dreams through them And you want them to save you from your failures in the boardroom from your failures in the classroom from your failures in the ballpark And we make our kids functional idols. We trust in them. Tim Keller says this, he says, no child can bear the weight of Godhood. And that is true. No child can bear the weight of Godhood. So number one, God may test us to see if our children are our idols. Number two, it's right to love our kids, but not more than God. And number three, I think the third lesson that we can learn here is that an unwillingness and unwillingness to release our children may indicate that they are our idols. And I get this from verse 12. Notice what God says to Abraham when he positively released his his son. Verse 12. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Here's the point. Now I know that you fear God. Now I know that your ultimate love, your ultimate obedience is to me. I know that you fear God because, here's the reason why, because you have not withheld from me your son. Because you've not withheld from me. That is, you have released your son in that very dramatic kind of a way. Again, Tim Keller says this about verse 12. Here then is the practical answer to our own idolatries, to the Isaacs in our lives. We need to offer them up. We need to find a way to keep them, excuse me, we need to find a way to keep from clutching them too tightly, of being enslaved to them. And so maybe to those of you who have older kids, um, but I think it applies all across the boards, how do we do in releasing our children? I think we release our kids throughout their life. And so at the very beginning of a life, if you... Uh, You know, you go from breast to bottle, right? And if you did that, that's a releasing of your child. Uh, You let them go off to school for the first time. You put their shoes on them and their brand new outfit, and you send them, you know, out the door of the car or to the bus, and you are releasing your child. Uh, How about the first time they get a license? Any of you ever done that? I know some of you have. I remember when I got my first license, and I was 16, I think, in Texas, and... My, my, I was going on my first car ride on my own, and, my, and, my, and I could see it in my mom and dad's eyes. I'm like, I'm just going to school. <laughs> it's five miles down the road, and they look at me like, oh, dear God, please protect this kid. You know, He's behind the, the, the wheel. Um, you are releasing your kids. What about college? Boy, that's a tough one, isn't it? You drop off your kid. I remember when I, uh, when I was first born, and so when I, my mom and dad dropped me off at Texas A&M University, they saw my dorm room, they met my uh, roommate and my roommate's parents, and, you know, we get all the stuff, it's loaded, and it's time to go, you know, it's time to go, and, and uh, we walk out to the curb, and I'm like, you know, bye-bye kisses, all that stuff, and my mom held it together, and, uh, but she said after they left, she just lost it, you know, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but you let your kids go, college, military, all sorts of things. And, you know, maybe finally when they get married, that can be a hard one as well. You're giving your daughter to another man. Wow. Uh, there are all sorts of times in life, I think, that we release our children. And so the question is, how well do we do that? Because if we don't do that well, it may be an indication that there's something deeper going on in our heart. I want to close with a, a quick, quick article Cynthia Copeland, in her book, Really Important Stuff That My Kids Have Taught Me, shares the following. She says, Things that my kids have taught me, number one, you can be anything you want to be when you grow up. If you wait until you're really sure, you never take off the training wheels. Nobody notices when your zipper is up, but everyone notices when your (laughs) zipper is down. Sometimes you have to take a test before you're finished studying. If you're going to fight, Use pillows. Before you trade sandwiches, check what's in between the bread. Good idea. You might end up with something like pimento cheese. Oh. Sorry if you love pimento cheese. <laughs> you have to eat a lot of cereal before you find something free. <laughs> if you don't want a kitten, start. If, if you want a kitten, start out asking for a horse. Kids, keep that in mind. It doesn't matter how fast you're running with the ball if you're going the wrong way. Sometimes the biggest apple has the biggest worms. And finally, you don't have to own a swing set to enjoy a swing. You don't have to don't have to own a swing to enjoy it. And I would suggest to you that the same is true of children. We don't have to own our children in order to enjoy them, I would suggest if we own our children in an idolatrous way, then we will not enjoy them and we will ruin both them and us. So in closing, I know I've said that once, this is closing number two. In closing number two, I want us to ask the question, how does this point us to Jesus Christ? Um, Every text, uh, in some way, shape or form, points towards the one who came some 2,000 years ago. And uh, I think this text points to Jesus Christ in many, many ways. And here's a few that I would suggest to you. Number one, uh, if you do some study, you'll find out that Abraham went to a set of hills, a set of hills called Moriah, possibly. And he goes to these hills, and you do some digging, and you find out that the city of Jerusalem would eventually be built in these hills of Moriah and you come to discover that in the event of the cross, some 1,900 years after these events, in these same set of hills in the land of Moriah, you'll find out that God there provided another substitute, that God there provided another sacrifice in those very same hills. Well, Abraham prophetically, remember the point of the story. Abraham said, uh, God's going to provide a lamb. Did you catch that? He said, God's going to provide a lamb in place. But God didn't provide a lamb in place, did he? Did you notice what it was? What was it? It was a ram. Was he wrong? Yes and no. God provided a ram in place of his son, of Abraham's son. But 2,000 years ago, I think Moses spoke prophetically. Because some 2,000 years ago, God did provide a lamb. God did provide a substitution God did provide a sacrifice, not for Isaac, but for all of us, for the sins of everyone. Remember in our story at Moriah that Isaac was bound. Did you notice that? It said it two times, I think, that, he, that Isaac, the substitute, the sacrifice, was, was bound with wood. And some 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ had a different kind of wood placed on his back. In our story, Abraham was willing even to give up his son. What a picture of God the Father because at Calvary, God did give up his son for us. Through the new life that Isaac was given, there was a substitute in his place. And Isaac, so to speak, had new life. And through Isaac, through the lineage was born, the nation of Israel was then given Jesus Christ. And so the promise continued through the new life that, Abraham, uh, that Isaac had. There was a promise of blessing. But at Calvary, through the resurrection of Jesus, the whole world received that promised blessing. And finally, at Moriah, Abraham showed that his son was not his idol. And Jesus at Calvary showed that he would even die for our idols. And so I want to ask if you've trusted in this substitute in this sacrifice, in a personal way, if you've come to the place to where you recognize that God's wrath is against you, that you're separated from him, that you don't know him, and that he, in love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate substitute, the ultimate sacrifice, who died and was raised from the dead. Have you placed your faith in him? Have you been born again? Have you come to know Jesus Christ? Have you been made anew? through simple faith and what he's done. This story points us towards Jesus Christ. And so in closing, number three, final, in closing, like the man on the cliff in our opening story and like Abraham, as parents, some of us, we may need to let go. We may need to let go. We may need to take our own figurative walk like Abraham into the mountains and to let a child that might become an idol to us go. And in that child's place, you will find that God is a satisfying substitute and that he will be everything that you're looking for. Let's pray. Father, thanks for a good day. Thank you that we can come and that we can give our worship to you. And we recognize that what we do in this place as we sing and as we listen and as we pray and as we give our money, which is your money, back to you, we recognize that these are just forms of worship and that all that we are and all that we do is we go uh, and have lunch and take naps and play with our kids and work and whatever it is that we do, it's all worship and we want what we do in here just to be a, a little reflection of all of our lives uh, lived in worship to you. Father, I pray for all of us here who are parents, pray for people here who are going to be parents one day um, that you would help us to love you supremely to find all that we, all that we need in you and not to idolize our kids Uh, to be like Abraham, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Guys, thanks for being here today. See you next week.